back to the Nerd Alert podcast. After a few group shows in a row, we return to a deep dive with a special guest. But before I introduce who that guest is, James, how's COVID? Hi, Dave. It's wonderful. Could, couldn't be better. Feeling top of the world? Uh, yeah, I'm feeling on top of a very, very small and crumbling world. Okay. Well, on that <laughs> summary <me>. note, <laughs> a well-timed cough. Okay, it seems barely a few months go by before we hear about another recall related to a safety-critical component, such as a steerer tube, a stem, or similar. Meanwhile, there are product failures without a related recall that rarely make the news, which is arguably even more worrying. To discuss all things related to component safety and industry testing, we gave Raul Lucia a ring. Based in Melbourne and with a past career in aircraft inspection, Raul is one of the bicycle industry's leading voices on component testing, safety, and carbon fiber composite repair. Welcome to the podcast, Raul. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to uh, discussing some of these topics. Great. Okay. So one of the things that keeps James and I up at night is uh, fork steerer failures. Uh, we yeah. suddenly It suddenly comes across our mind more than it really should for something that really shouldn't be on our minds. Um, what industry test standards are out there that are related to the steerers and forks? So the ISO test standard, um, until recently, there wasn't any involvement in testing the steerer uh, and the stem interface at all. So, yeah, right. so often the, the test was basically the fork would be mounted in a, in a steel jig, which would secure the, like the length of the steerer and then you do the drop test and the fatigue test and static load and all this sort of stuff. But the fork wasn't being held in the same manner that it's being held in the frame. So, you know, mm. by the head by the headset bearings. And so, you know, you've got different load cases in that situation. And then you've got the stem clamp situation as well. So, you know, you're inducing another load at that interface. So yeah, there's been a lot of discussions on uh, on that, and at the uh, at the Cyclotech conference, um, when was that? 2016. And I remember that there was one of the Cervelo engineers gave a presentation on how they found that when um, they were having these steerer failures, and they identified it from when the and these were brand new bikes, so they mm. they, they were basically taken out of the box. Adjusted customer would uh, would do a test ride down the street and they'd get a steerer failure and they're going, well, what's going on here? Um, they identified that when the bikes get shipped in the box, if, it, if the box gets dropped in a certain way, it can put a shock load into the steerer, which can mm. delaminate the steerer and then lead to, a, lead to that sort of failure. Around that time, there was, there was a lot of discussion on on how to improve the test standards to be more relevant to the actual use conditions yep. of, uh, of particularly a carbon steerer. So the, the test standards were, were based around metal, uh, metal parts, metal steerers. So originally all the steerers were steel and then they transitioned to aluminium and then they transitioned to carbon. And so there's... A significant difference in in failure modes and uh, and 
and sort of qualification process between a metal part and a carbon part because they have completely different uh, mechanical characteristics. So, so that, that sort of step was missed in terms of the standards were lagging behind what the materials, um, material selection and, and use was. So, mm. so in the last couple of years, I mean, there's, there's, there's quite a lot of inertia in like creating standards. It takes time. You can't just click your fingers and all of a sudden, you know, everything's, everything's changed. There's a lot of inertia in that system. So in, in the last couple of years, the, the standards that the, um, particularly the, like t- the Taiwanese, uh, standards have really been driving this where the fork needs to be tested in, the same sort of uh, mounting characteristics, and there's a stem test, etc., for, for carbon forks. So that's that's changed sort of very recently. However, there's still a lot of of old product out there. And then, have, having said that, there was also you know, the, as demonstrated by the recalls, there still appears to be some disconnect between the test standards and um, and the use cases, because otherwise there wouldn't be there wouldn't there wouldn't be recalls if they're finding defects in the test processes. Yeah, because my understanding is has always been that forks have been one of the most rigorously tested and investigated parts on a bike, purely because the consequences of one failing are so high. But it's also kind of come to light, kind of the more I look at a lot of the kind of instrumented testing in general, how. A lot of the instrumented testing, the, the tests are designed almost kind of more for repeatability and just kind of like ease of setup and practicality as opposed to reflecting real world, real world uses in terms of how they are actually set up. And like you said, Raoul, like those those steer those fork tests, as you mentioned, this their steerer is basically taken out of the equation because it sort of was just assumed essentially that that really wasn't going to be where a failure was going to occur. But if we have situations now where we have, particularly with this this rise in internal cable routing and all the more complicated headset setups and uh, just kind of kind of more complicated steer tube designs and whatnot, um, you said there's some inertia behind developing better tests or or kind of uh, refining tests that that are already out there. How far are how far off are those refinements or additional tests? Until they actually become become standard practice, or is it kind of just like a company by company case? Yeah, good question, and I'm I'm not sure. You really need to speak to you know the brands and and the actual bike manufacturers, you know the the, the contract factories who are actually doing doing that work. I'm sort of I'm a little bit disconnected from that, so yeah, I can't really make a, a comment on where where they are with that. However. As as the recalls demonstrate, there is that disconnect. So, and the testing is also um, it tests the design as opposed to testing the individual component. Now, with with, with composite, with carbon composite, each part is laid up hand by hand manually by an operator. So we're not at the stage yet, and, and bicycles. Bicycles are very difficult in terms of layup because of, uh, of the geometry and the size and things like that. It's easy to do and like have robotic layup on an aircraft part, which is a big flat panel, and and the robot can lay that up. But on a on intricate small parts like 
like a fork and around the crown area. All that layup is is being done by hand. And so there's variations in that. So you really need to, um, apart from testing the design, you need to validate that each individual component that's being manufactured is is defect free in critical areas and 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 these sorts of things and I mean even in aerospace where they automate the layup they still they do that so they do um, on critical parts it's still 100% ultrasound inspected now some of the brands will do a um, a proof load test they'll load up each individual fork to a percentage of um, of, of of a design load and basically if it doesn't fail or you know, there's no crack indication or noise coming out of it under that load. It's de- it's deemed acceptable. However, again, with composites, that's it doesn't always show what the the long term um, problem is because with the elongation on composite product is is so low. Um, you know, in the order of of two percent elongation um, at failure, whereas you know steel might be. 13 14 percent um so with that really low elongation you're either it either takes a load or it doesn't there's not much there's no bending or or deformation like that which so again it sort of comes back to the test standards are based more around traditional materials a steel steerer on a on a steel fork you didn't have to worry about it it was a it was a high-quality drawn tube, proven production process. There was no variability in that, so you knew that you could um, you could braze that into the crown or weld it into the crown or however you were going to however however you're going to do it. Um, but you knew that that tube was was consistently good. Whereas with the composite, you don't know that until you test it. So just to rewind a bit, what is the uh I guess this, the standards these days when you're, you're testing a fork, what, what does that process look like? What do they run that fork through? So you've got the impact test where they, they fix the fork and I guess they, they clamp it, ignoring the steerer, and they drop a weight from above onto the, onto the end of the dropout. Yeah. Onto the axle. What else is there? So then there's, uh, there's a static load test um, and then there's a fatigue, the fatigue test. Okay, and the fatigue test. And do you know what the, the fatigue test entails oh i'd have to look up the standard <laughs> exactly um but it's basically you know you're putting a lot, a lot, a lot yeah, of cycles yeah <laughs> you're, you're putting um hundreds of thousands of cycles in, yep. into it now again with composites a floor free composite part is very fatigue resistant so you know that's the advantage that's why it's being used in aerospace um because it's fatigue resistance compared to um aluminium if the part is is well made, there won't be an issue in the fatigue in the fatigue test. However, if if there's a, a void or a wrinkle in a critical area, then all bets are off because of the handmade nature of it. You need to you need to verify that there aren't these mm. critical defects in these critical areas you know, that make the difference between it, um, surviving or not surviving. I know this is something that we have talked about before. Just sort of the Kind of the 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 design versus the real world product for composite products, purely because there's so much variability between what is on 
the the layup schedule and what is like what's on the, what's spec spec out on the sheet versus what actually comes out of the mold. Since it's not really practical for companies to do piece by piece, one hundred percent inspection for all forks, uh, at least as as far as like you know physical testing goes, is it practical then to do a hundred percent testing via like a CT scanner or something like that? Because I know, because I know some companies like uh, Canyon, for for instance, that they were they were saying for quite a while that they were doing one hundred percent CT scans of all their forks. So is 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 that something that you would advocate for? Or is that something that you think should be done? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's certainly it's certainly better than not doing any inspection. Um, there are some limitations. So each each different um, non destructive testing method is more or less suitable for finding different types of defects. And then you have the resolution of the system. A resolution and the scan time are. Are related. So basically, the higher the resolution, the longer the scan's going to take. And and then she. So then the question you need to ask is, well, what is the critical defect size? So what is the smallest defect which is actually going to be critical to the performance of the part? And what do I need to do to reliably find that size defect in that location? So that's that's the first step, and that takes a lot of engineering background to work out because you need to then have parts with artificial defects in those areas, and then run them through the fatigue test or drop drop tests and 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 see how they perform. So I'm not aware of anybody in the bicycle industry doing that that type of thing where you actually have a flaw and you um, analyze the effect of that flaw on the performance of the part. And uh, some of the things that have come across my desk, you know, when I've been involved with um, expert witness cases and the data from a, a fork has, has been presented. And the first question I ask, like, they, you know, because they, they, they all say, well, we do quality, we do in house quality assurance. And, and it's like, yeah, that's that's fine. What are your what's your rejection criteria? You need to you need to have a standard to what you reject at. It can't be a wishy washy sort of oh like if we see something that doesn't look right, we'll we'll put that one aside. You, you need to actually tie it down to something. So it's either within spec or it's out of spec, and there's no there's no grey area. Um, I've seen. I've seen uh, radiographs of of a whole bunch of forks that that were tested, and on one one fork there was a, an indication on the radiograph which to me looked like a void in a in a critical area, and on another fork there was the same sort of indication, and one was accepted, and one was rejected, and I asked them well, on what on what grounds was one accepted and one rejected because. To me, the indication looks the same. So, and they couldn't give me that answer. Yeah. So, so I, I was requesting for their rejection criteria, and and they didn't have one basically. And then the other question you ask, what's your scrap rate? Because any production factory who's on top of quality will know exactly what their scrap rate is, and they'll want to reduce that to a minimum. Nobody wants to make scrap parts. Everyone. 
the goal is to make parts that, uh, that meet your quality criteria. So if somebody can't tell you what their scrap rate is, it means they don't really know. Mm. And if they don't know, why don't they know? Um, one thing that we haven't really touched on is, you know, we've had this discussion before about defects in carbon fiber parts that are, I guess, introduced during the manufacturing process that they're obviously not there by design. However, a lot of the steer or a lot of the fork failures that we're seeing, it's been a long time since we see, you know, fork blades failing spontaneously under load because of, you know, insufficient resin impregnation, stuff like that. Like I remember it was probably what, 20 some odd years ago or something when I remember Orbea had a fork recall because the, the legs were basically just sort of coming apart. Um, but nowadays, the, the the recalls that we're seeing are almost entirely steerer-based, but they don't seem to be part defects so much as like it, it doesn't seem to be related to something that like the fork wasn't made properly. It seems more like it's a design defect related to the whole system. So... It sounds like currently, however, there is no test for that because the test sort of omits the rest of that system at the moment. So essentially, is it reliant on the individual manufacturers to test those forks as they are loaded in those bikes with all the headset parts and the stem parts and the housing parts and the hoses and all the other stuff? Like, Is it reliant on them to do it like that to see if there's something wrong with their design? Yeah, absolutely. And I I, I scan a lot of parts and... Um, and I've been doing so for a very long time. And I'd say that maybe about four years ago, the incidence of significant voids in steerer tubes had dropped significantly. The, the parts were being manufactured to a, to a better, uh, better level. Um, and then the internal cable um, system came in and the designs changed and we went back another 15 years. Great. I mean, I sort of joke about it and it's like, you know, you finally got around to making a straight round tube without defects and now you change and make a D-shaped tube and you're back to where you were where you couldn't make a straight round tube anymore. Well, why do you want to make life boring, Ralph? I mean, <laughs> things have to be exciting, don't they? <laughs> Got to live on the edge. <laughs> well, th- th- that's that's right. But like my my kids are, my kids are, uh, have really started started riding, and uh, yeah, I scan <laughs> I scan their forks before uh, before they go out on on the on the you know before I give them a bike. But um, so yeah, so what you're saying, like there was a a design change. And then we almost went back to the beginning. Now, when you have particularly tight corners, and there's there's a number of them, like I mean, the BMC had the problem where they've had that sort of rectangular shape, um, and the corners were were really tight, and the fiber doesn't like being bent around those corners, and so you get this combination where you can kink the fiber, which can actually fracture the fiber, um, trying to bend around that corner. You're also more likely to have what we call linear porosity or linear voids along that that corner because if the fiber won't get right into the corner properly, you don't get a, a uniform compaction, so you can get voids in there. And so you have a void and then that drops the, the compressive strength by 20 25% maybe. And then you're clamping a steerer on that, which is inducing a point load on an area which has got reduced compressive strength. And it's basically a recipe for uh, well, for what we've seen. So what 
where do you see the gaps in the, I guess, the current test standards? What would you like to see implemented, I guess, as, as uh, well, as a standard? Yeah, so firstly, the, the design needs to be validated correctly as a complete system. So instead of, you know, isolating and, and say, okay, we're going to test the steerer and then we're going to test the stem as a separate piece, it, it needs to be all tested as a, as a unit. Yeah, and, and so typically the process would be that you test each component individually first to make sure that they that they pass each section of the, the test as an individual item, and then you test the complete assembly and look for any anomalies in in, in the use case. So, and then you'd you'd want to look at having some um, you know, some real real world load conditions. You know, instead of sort of numbers that just might look convenient, you know, so like the load cases, they always, they're like there might be a, a thousand newtons, but, you know, maybe the real load case might be 1,127 newtons. We've got the ability to, to instrument, instrument bikes and actually identify what the real loads are and then transfer those into the test protocol. Um, mm. Then, then the other thing is you can't just test one item and then go, okay, everything's fine. You need to, you need to continually validate that your production processes are repeatable and reliable. So, I mean, if you look at the helmets, in, in Australia, which we, we have very tough bicycle helmet standards, not only does it have to pass the test initially, but from production uh, further testing gets done on each, so they pull helmets out of the production batch. I think it's every one, you know, every hundred helmets need to be destructively tested just to to make sure that things are are still meeting those requirements. And um, and so there's a bunch of statistical process control methods that you can you can utilize to sort of to validate that your production process is on track. I'm I'm not aware of I'm not aware of that being done. Um, to, to yeah to any uh, to, yeah to any any real level. Um, I mean the, the the brands do tend to keep a lot of that information to themselves. Maybe they should be a little bit more forthcoming in some of that stuff and in, in in what they mm. do. But you know I I think they probably don't want to scare people. Yeah. You know the things can fail, but the reality is the things can fail and. Uh, yeah, nobody wants that to happen to them. Yeah, hence why James and I haven't slept in years. <laughs> yeah, and hence why I scan everything, everything that I ride or my kids ride. I scan it, and uh, or more, more to the point, maybe, maybe more. I mean, unfortunately, people who are listening to the podcast aren't; they can't see this. But uh, Ral, I, I wish everyone could see the sweatshirt that you're wearing right now because <laughs> it, it ha- has sort of your your, I guess, official or unofficial logo. Um, <laughs> But uh, it, it, it's basically, it just says less than ideal, which is basically roused euphemism for when the things are just not quite what they should be. Yeah. Yeah. As a shameless plug, you can go to my Teespring store and you can buy the shirts. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what you're saying with the, the standards, you don't, you're not aware of any, um, any required batch testing when it comes to forks or frames that, that's part that, of the standard? That's not mentioned in the ISO, no. Yeah, interesting. Okay. So it's it's literally up to the individual manufacturer yeah. to do that yeah. in house to avoid issue. So so basically the ISO testing is is designed to validate 
a product or component design, not so much to verify the quality of their manufacturing processes. Correct. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. So, All right. yeah, and as, as I touched on before, that typically with a, with a, a metal product, that was okay. Those stereotubes have, had evolved over a long period of time. When steel bikes first came around in the late 1800s, they had failures. And then over, over decades, things evolved. And, you know, and then Reynolds 531, I think that came around in the, might have been the late 50s, early 60s, and, you know, and, and Columbus tube sets and all these. So they'd evolved over quite a long period of time. And all the, all the little design bugs and stuff has all been worked out. So they knew what wall thickness they needed, what, uh, what butting lengths and all this sort of stuff. They'd worked all that stuff out. And then carbon comes along and it's well, – I mean, the first aluminium came along and, and so oh, we've got this new material. It's much lighter. We'll use this. And, but it hasn't had the evolution. And then carbon comes along and it's just like – and then you've got all these factories who are used to working in metals – and now they're working in this completely different material, but they're expected to understand that material and make safe products when they've never dealt with it before. It's, um, you know, it's it, just unrealistic. It's, it, to, mm. you know, if, if you look at it logically, you know, I'm trying to think of, a, a, of an analogy, you know, someone who's been, been doing one particular thing every day all his life and then all of a sudden he's asked to do something similar but with a completely different material and expecting the same result and it doesn't always work like that you are you're obviously an expert in the the carbon repair business in the carbon repair world um a lot of other repairers look up to you for for advice and similar uh you've been doing it a long time ignoring crash damage and similar james mentioned before about uh how iso is testing for design fault and not necessarily for for manufacturing, ongoing manufacturing fault, what do you see the most of? So ignoring crash stuff, are you seeing more issues coming through your door related to design errors or is it mainly manufacturing and process faults? So in the last few years, I'd say mainly design, you know, particularly with the, um, with the integrated cable. So head, head tubes, I mean, you would have seen the videos I did with you know, the Cervelo and the, the Cannondale and, and there's others, Factor have had, had problems. So, you know, BMC have had problems, even, you know, Trek have had problems. They, they, and they've all been design-related. So the, the repeatability of the, of the production, of the carbon production, has improved significantly in, in the last few years. So, you know, if you go back through on, on, on my YouTube some of the, the early bikes that I'd cut up and, and, uh, and show the inside of, and, and you'd be absolutely horrified of the mess inside, now you don't see any of that. Like the flaws that you see are, um, are very, very minor. Yeah, you still can, do, can, can get some, some voids here and there, but they're usually very minor. You don't get the fibre wrinkling, which is a really critical, um, really critical flaw uh, so much. So, yeah, and, and that was, I think I made, made a bit of a joke, particularly with the, um, with the Cannondale because the layup on that bike was fantastic and then they have a steel pin on the fork which when it rotates it it impacts into like almost like end grain carbon fibre in, in the lower head tube and just explodes the bottom of the 
of the bearing race apart. And it's just like, how can you make so, you, you, like you're making this part really, really well, but then you've just got this, like, how could you not see? It's basically a chisel going into a, in, into the end of a piece of wood. It's like, come on, <laughs> you know, you, you can make you, you're making it really well, but you've got this design problem now. So, um, yeah, which is disappointing. For it's like from my end, when I uh, when a bike comes in, if someone's had a crash and they 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 bring the bike in for a full frame and fork inspection, the last thing I want is is to see a bike full of manufacturing flaws. Yeah, it, it it shouldn't be there. And uh, you know, when you scan a bike, all you should be finding is any structural damage due to an accident. When you say, you know, you said earlier that at least up until the point where we started to see a lot of the internal cable routing stuff, um, that part consistency was getting a lot better. That the number of flaws that you were seeing were a lot were dropping in number quite significantly. Would you say that you currently have more confidence in sort of this kind of like new throwback sort of bikes that are kind of more traditional in terms of their shape and their design and their cable routing? Uh, would you say you have more confidence in those bikes, despite the fact that they're now just ultra, ultra light versus bikes that are equally new, but more complex in design and maybe perhaps not quite as evolved in terms of their composite manufacturing um, because we we do have these two different types of bikes now and it is interesting how not that long ago we really wouldn't have been too confident in a, a road frame for example that's you know what 600 700 grams it just wouldn't it just would have come across as being far far too brittle but now we have them everywhere yeah and that, and that's uh so in terms of manufacturing the simpler something is to make the less likelihood that there's going to be a problem making it with composites laying up sheets of fiber, the less complex the shape is, like a straight round tube, you can you can lay the fiber around a mandrel and you can make a, a good quality a good quality tube. If it's got all these little features in it, the fiber then has to work its its way around those features and then your compaction system needs to compact into those features and it, it just adds a whole level of complexity and then if you're trying to make a bike in larger pieces so you've got junctions involved and and these sorts of things you know you find oh there's maybe a little defect in one spot but then if i if i scrap that part i'm scrapping 40 percent or 50 percent of the bike i don't really want to do that because it cuts into my bottom line blah 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 so by making simple parts like the those early Scott bikes from an almost 15 years ago where they had straight round tubes and they were joined tube to tube and they were ridiculously light for the time and I never saw any problems with those. And uh, when, when I was involved with, with Melbourne Star, with the Oppie um, in 2008 and so designed that and we, we chose the tube to tube process for that reason that you could – you, by making indiv- individual tubes, it's much easier to inspect an individual tube than it is to inspect an assembly. So a, like a straight round tube where you can look down for a start um, and you, you, so you, you can move it in different light and you can, you can pick up any uh, irregularities and it's much more, um, these things are much more visible. So although having 
you know, non-destructive processes is sort of a, a step up again. Just doing a good visual inspection if, with, with an experienced uh, operator can tell a lot as well. So would you say that, um, you know, like there, there's been kind of this rise in this multi-piece bonded carbon frame construction layout lately, um, looking at companies like Envy, for example, or um, like Colnago with this latest C68, or um, even like this small company Pursuit um, that Carl Strong is doing out of Montana. Yeah, One similarity that all of these companies have is that they are introducing frames that more or less look pretty traditional, like, like traditional modular monocoques. Um, but they are constructing their frames out of multiple smaller sections that are then bonded together after the fact and then overwrapped. One of the advantages that they that they talk about is that because they're able to mold, or because they have to mold these smaller pieces, they're saying that they're able to have better quality control, better part consistency, um, easier and more more um, I, I guess more comprehensive inspection. Do you, do you think there's some merit to that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you know, as as I touched on before, like if you've got if you've got a bunch of small components and they they're all individually low value components, um, you're much more likely, from a business point of view, to scrap it to scrap one of those low value components if it doesn't meet a, a specification than if you've got a complete front triangle of a bike and it's just like oh yeah, but there's yeah, but this is avoid the size of a of a ten cent piece in the seat tube, and oh look, the seat, seat tube's not that highly loaded. I think we can probably get away with that, and oh, let's just let it go. Whereas with if it's if it was a low value item, you just go, well, let's just put another one in, right? Because I guess so. One of the things that came across our desk recently uh, is a press release that we got from BMC. They have this range that's uh, kind of like upper upper end flagship collection that they call masterpiece. And supposedly these are frames that are, uh, unlike the regular inline stuff that are modular monocoque, these are true monocoques, um, molded all in one piece, one shot, no paint, all these surface finishes completely left exposed, and everything has to, supposedly everything is has to be 100% perfect. Like it, it's, it's a masterpiece. Um, but the, the asking prices are also pretty insane. There's something like 10,000 euros for a frame set. I think it's a bit, quite a bit more than that, actually. Uh, I think it's another twenty percent or something on top of that. It, it's a lot. It's for the it's, frame set. It's well, yeah, it's a lot. Either it's way, it's well, well into the five digits for yeah. euros. Um, but for me, one one thing that I wonder about with all this discussion that we're having about scrap rates and inspection and, and everything, with a frame like that, where part of the appeal is that it's visually perfect, straight out of the mold, and there's nothing to hide. Does making something like that actually it, it seems it, well. Am I correct in assuming that making something to that level of precision doesn't so much require that much more to make, or is it kind of more an issue that the scrap rate is so much higher that the end per part cost just end up going that much higher? Well, that's it. The first question you uh, that you need to ask them would be, "What is their scrap rate?" Like you know, if, and if they can't tell you, again, it means they don't well, know, <laughs> and, and they. They may be able to tell us, but they probably will never actually tell us. Well, that, that's right, and 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 yeah, that's that's the thing. When I was working at uh, at Boeing, there was a sign as you enter the factory what the scrap rate was—a big billboard, a big 
big sign. This is the scrap rate as of today. And you don't want to see that number going up. That's, you know, the, in the bike industry, there's none of that. There's, it's all, oh, let's, let's just keep it, uh, keep all that information hush, hush. Um, but that's the first thing. It's like the, in, 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 a, in a bike like that, yeah, it would be possible to make, to make a bike like that. Um, but the, the question, the, the, the first two questions I'd be asking are, uh, A, what's your rejection criteria? And B, what's your scrap rate? And, you know, A leads into B. If you don't know A, you don't know B. So you can make up what B might be, <laughs> but, yeah, it's just a guess. So they're the two things which are, which are absolutely, absolutely critical. And so and then in terms, of, in terms of A, what's your rejection criteria, then it comes down to, you know, what methods are you using to find specific types of, uh, of flaws or defects or um, yeah, all, all those sorts of things. And, you know, let, let's, let's be really realistic. The testing is expensive. In an in a aerospace sense, you can have a, a titanium bolt coming off the same production line, identical bolt in every single way, same material, same thread, same length, identical surface finish, identical bolt every single way. The industrial bolt might cost you $1.50, the aerospace one will cost you $16. And it's exactly the same, except one has gone through the testing protocols. And so the one that goes on the plane, they know that it's going to perform. The, the industrial one probably will, and it's a very, very good chance that it will. But you don't know. But not guaranteed. That's right. You don't yeah. know. Yeah. Let's just talk briefly about... Um I guess non-destructive inspections. Uh, what what do they? What are the methods for carbon fiber in um, aerospace world? And uh, I guess what are the options for bicycles? Yeah. So the the main process is is ultrasound. Um, so the radiography and um, thermography has has also been used, um, but ultrasound is really the main player. Um, for a number of reasons, and you know, primarily that your the way the parts are made with by laying sheets of material on top of each other makes failure modes and 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 flaws etc. are typically planar in nature, so they're they're parallel to the surface, and so an ultrasound scan in a compression wave uh, ninety degree probe. Is really reliable at finding those sorts of things and very very sensitive um, to that. You can also then identify uh, the depth within the laminate. You can identify what type of floor it is, whether it's whether it's porosity or a, a disbond or you know a whole a whole bunch of different things. The other advantage with ultrasound is that it's it's relatively quick. It can be automated. And it's safe. Um, so radiography or CT scans involve ionising radiation, which yeah is is dangerous. So we had we had a, a robotic X-ray system at Boeing, and we all had to wear the little red tags that the doctors and stuff wear, and and constantly monitor our exposure. 
to any radiation. Wow. And I mean, we, you know, you never never got exposed because everything's controlled in terms. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, the, but the X-ray room, this big room with concrete walls, sort of half a meter thick, and this lead-lined steel door that's a foot thick, um, which is on this hydraulic, <laughs> you know, and so and you've got to constantly be moving these these big paths into this area through all this. It's yeah, it's less wow. than ideal. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there it is. Yeah, you know, with with ultrasound, you can have a portable set, um, and you can just manually go and do stuff. And um, and so you know, from a safety point of view. Um, but I mean, high some high resolution, you know, like like a CT scan is you know, like you can get a lot of information from that. Um, but it's often it's often too much information in a production environment. You're really looking for a go no go type situation. You whether a fiber is three degrees out of its optimum alignment may or may not be critical, but that comes down to your rejection criteria. So, so like I said before, you've got, in terms of scanning, you've got resolution and you've got time and cost. So you identify what your minimum defect size and then you use utilise a process to, to find that and you don't need to find anything. You don't need higher sensitivity than that. And, and so with... Um, yeah, with with ultrasound, that that sort of stuff can be automated quite readily. So, I mean, we had we had the rudder skins of triple um, seven, which is a big part. Like the rudder of a triple seven aircraft, if you've probably seen it, it's quite a big part. And um, yeah, you know, it's about forty feet long and roughly twelve feet wide. Um, and you know, this, so the skins on both sides and the spars it had a couple of spars in it as well. And they're all ultrasound scanned um, on an automated system, and uh, you know it takes an, a number of hours. I think, it, like to do one of the side skins, took maybe an hour and a half or something like that to scan it um, wow. for a big part like that. So, you know, t- to do a fork steerer, to automate to do a fork steerer would not be a complex thing to do. What when you say it's not terribly complex and it maybe wouldn't take very long to do, um, we've mentioned ultrasound inspection a number of times on the show in different contexts. Um, is this something that is relatively practical for someone to, to do as, as a business? Like what, what sort of costs are involved? Um, and obviously I mean, I would assume there's some sort of training involved in, as well, but like what is actually involved with getting an ultrasound carbon composite inspection station going experience and knowledge are the two critical things so i get i get asked this all the time oh i'm I'm looking into getting into doing some ultrasound scanning what 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 unit should i buy and my standard reply and i mean might be considered to be a little bit of a, a smart aleck sort of answer but it's like well i can go and buy a scalpel but you don't necessarily want me to operate on you. It's it's about it's about the background knowledge of knowing what the signal that you're seeing represents, and and that takes time. And uh, you know, we, 
I was I was fortunate in that uh, like I received in-house training at Boeing, you know, and I was scanning parts eight hours a day every day for maybe a year under supervision before I was even come close to being allowed to um, sign anything off or, you know, and then to sign stuff off, you had to then go through all these other approvals and you had to pass all these tests and you have to do it, pass the tests on a regular basis where you, apart from the theoretical knowledge that you have to have, they have, they'll give you a panel which has got um, artificial defects in it, which you don't know where they are and you have to scan that and you have to, fully um, verify every indication in that panel, um, validate all the defects in this panel and and get it right to maintain your certification. So it's not a trivial thing. And let's just say when everything's in your favour, it's really easy. Like, you know, I, can, I could put a set in front of you and I could have a defect and I could run the probe in, and it's just like, oh, Really, really easy. You, you know, you can see what the damage is. You know, it's it's very clear, very simple. Um, however, to get to that point, you, so you need to set up the set so um, it can find the defects that you're looking for. So, you know, these these sets are infinitely adjustable. Like, there's a whole range of adjustment settings. Um, you need to select the right transducer to be on the part, depending on the thickness of the part. Yeah, and even then, like with very thin materials such in bike frames, um, it's very difficult to find near-surface uh, defects or damage. So the hardest thing to find is, is, um, is damage one ply down on a thin laminate. So, you know, it, you know one of the examples, well, so I was involved in setting up on the F-18 uh, ENF project at, at Boeing. We were making the flaps. I was programming the automated ultrasonic scanning system, um, the OS, and it was the best part of three months setup time for us to repeatably and reliably find all the artificial defects in the test standard. So to, to set that up, and that was they were big days because this production was riding on this, and you know there was there was a, a team of us, and we were all doing 12, 14 hour days and weekends to get this thing going, and um, you know and we were all very experienced senior guys at the time, and it 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 took a long time to do, and um, it can be relatively easy if everything's just put on your lap, but when things go outside the norm a little bit do you know what you're looking for and the, the signal that you're getting is real and that's that's the critical question so um because if you don't and you're then accepting a part then then there's you know, possible consequences of that so um these these structures the bikes because of the geometry you get some weird things happening with the sound because you're basically dealing with a sound wave traveling into the part and you're monitoring the reflection back different geometry changes the way the sound flows in the part and and mm. you need to know that and you need to understand that and people know me for my bike cut-ups on 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 youtube but i i did those bike cut-ups when i first started scanning bikes 
to understand how the bikes were being made so I could, I could map the ultrasonic flow through sections of the bike and really understand what was going on with those scans. And it, and it was only really then a, a friend of mine saw the bikes because I have them hanging up in my workshop and go, oh, that'd be really interesting if you, if you did YouTube videos on those and showed people what they were like. And it's just like, oh, yeah, okay. Um, but, the, but the purpose of it was, was not – I don't cut up bikes to make YouTube videos. I cut up bikes to, to understand that particular model, how that is made and how sound goes through those areas when I scan it. You know, so, that, so those sorts of things – you so see, you're constantly building on the database, and uh, I mean, I've I've cut up, yeah, uh, probably over a hundred bikes, um, different ones over the years, and uh, it's like anything. You got to know, you got to know what you don't know. It was Donald Rumsfeld, Donald Rumsfeld said, uh, "It's the unknown unknowns which are the which are the problem." And uh, yeah, so you know, you can scan you, you can scan something, and you can think you're scanning something. And you're getting all the answers, but you may not be. And uh, just using the tool incorrectly. Yeah, that's right. And you know, there's no instant feedback on that. So the feedback mm. could be months later when the part fails and someone dies. Mm. That's a the positive. <laughs> so well, that's, that's the reality. That's, yeah. yeah, like yeah, one one might even say that's less than ideal. <laughs> Correct. It is less than ideal. Yeah. So it sounds like, I mean, you're saying you spent three months just programming this, the ability to do scans at Boeing. I mean, that's sounds like it's kind of at odds with how the bicycle industry works, where there's this expectation. It's a, it's a consumer product. There's an expectation to turn out a, a new version every, every three years approximately. So, I mean, there's not really the, the timeline in place to, to implement these sort of advanced inspection systems i guess is is that well that was uh, are there ways around yeah, so, that i mean that was a pretty complex part so um although it sounds simple you know it's a trailing edge flap it's like basically a v-shaped box about the size of a large coffee table or small dining table um but it had a lot of internal features internal ribs and things like that and we had to track all the radius um so where these internal ribs were Every radius junction, which and, and, and the radius was um, was quarter of an inch, and we had to find we had to find any defects which was less than eighth of an inch down these sections. So it was we were being very fussy with these um, in the in the bike industry. There's in in my experience there, there's a couple of a couple of locations which are really critical. One being one being fork steerer, yeah. They're, they're they're basically a straight tube, either historically a round tube, but now they've got some shape. So the complexity is not that difficult, um, and, and it's not like from from one model year to the next that that's changing significantly from year to year. So um, so you could introduce. You could introduce, you know, these sorts of processes, um, but you know, and the other the other thing to to consider also is that if we assume at the moment that there's very little or no testing, any testing is better than that. So, mm. you know, having any sort of data that starts to identify 
um, potential problems in the process is better than no data. And it, it gives you something to build on. So, yeah, I, I can appreciate it can be a very big step to go, you know, from from one end of the street down to the other end of the street. Um, but by the same token, if you want to get there, you've got to start taking steps to get there. You know, you can't just pick your fingers and you're going to go, you're going to have, go from nothing to having everything. You, you, you need to actually start developing processes, understanding the processes hmm. and, and heading towards that goal. So, um, but, I mean, ba- basically, you know, the parts are, I mean, effectively like tennis rackets, right? So they're, they're a disposable, throwaway, replaceable, just um, whatever item um, made with the same process that the tennis rackets are made with. But no one's riding a tennis racket at 80 kilometers per hour on track. Correct. And if, so if, yeah. if a tennis racket fails, uh, you know, well, does anyone get killed? Highly unlikely someone's going to get killed with the tennis racket failure. I mean, it sort of brings, brings me on to what, probably one of my other bugbears, I suppose, of, of the whole industry. It's just how disposable and throwaway all this stuff is. You know, if the bikes were built better, to be more durable, more reliable, surely that would be a better thing for the environment. Yeah. Then in, in one sense, you know, there is a sort of the tide is turning a little bit. There is, there's been more awareness of the environmental aspect of, of the bikes. One of the, I, I wrote to the UCI um, last year about this in terms of showing some, some leadership on just how, you know, whenever, whenever there's a crash in, in a race, the um, they could just get on a new bike, and yeah. um, and I can understand that because well, you, it's difficult to identify what the damage is on the uh, on the bike that's just crashed. So you're better off having the guy on a new bike. Um, but another way to do it would be to have the bikes uh, basically more reliable, more survivable of these sorts of things. Yeah, and so. I suggested to the UCI that maybe they should do something like how Formula One limit the amount of uh, motors or chassis and things like that that a team is allowed to use in a season. And so, you know, they get given X amount of bikes and they've got to make that work. And if they don't, then they get penalised for that. Mm. And um, Yeah, it would definitely change the design. That's right. And make the bikes more practical for for the everyday riders that they're marketed to. So, mm. you know, let, let, let's face it, nobody nobody's going to buy a Formula One car to go and do their, their grocery shopping. You know, you're going to have... Some people might, but they won't be able to buy it. But some people, I'm sure, want to. Yeah, where, where are you going to put, where are you <laughs> going to put your... Uh, your, your packets of toilet paper. <laughs> There's not much room in well, it. <laughs> well, well, no, but, but Raul, Raul the, the beauty of using a Formula One car to do your grocery shopping is you have to do multiple trips. <laughs> mm, so it just it just stretches out the fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's not very practical, though. <laughs> so, no. um, you know, and, and, and you know, if we, if, if we look at the, the, the bike industry, basically, the pro-level bikes uh, – uh, marketing and advertising to sell bikes to ordinary riders. Um, so people people can go, oh, the um, such and such 
won the Tour de France on this bike. Um, I'm going to go buy one of those because that's the best bike. And, um, you know, so if – but if the bikes were – and then, you know, the, 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 they, uh, they ride the bike, they, they go down to the coffee shop and that um, a gust of wind blows it over and it, and it snaps the top tube. And, um, and, yeah, that happens. It's like yeah. that happens a lot. Yeah. And uh, it's just like, ah, oh, it's my brand new bike, and it's just broken. Now I've got to get, uh, I got to go get it uh, fixed, and yeah, or get a new one. And, uh, and it, yeah, disposable, yeah. as you say. And that's, yeah, uh, I don't know. That's, it's you know, the, a lot of the brands you know seem to be talking about being environmentally responsible, um, but they're still shipping products all over the world, and they're not really making their bikes um that mm. usable yeah it's amazing how how intertwined i guess the conversation of safety and environmental uh responsibility and sustainable is uh sustainability is because it's you know as you say if these bikes are made to take a hit and take an impact or survive a crash then chances are there's probably enough uh, uh redundant material there as well that we'd we wouldn't see these uh these safety issues arise nearly as regularly as yeah. well. So, I mean, when I did the Melbourne Star and we had this discussion, and you know, it was it was being used by the Genesis team here in Australia, and you know, which was the leading domestic uh, pro team, and and so they wanted the bikes to be um, at at race weight uh, from a performance point of view. However, they're also travelling all over the country with their bikes and, you know, a lot of bikes get damaged in transit, um, just getting, you know, in and out of trucks and airlines and things like that. We see a lot of, a lot of bikes uh, getting damaged like it or on roof racks, uh, you know, so, much, so many bikes get damaged on roof racks. Um, and so at the time, the design decision was, for the, for the sake of 100 grams of material, if you put that 100 grams of material in the right places, you'll never have a problem with the bike. It's 100 grams, like good uh, component selection. You can still make your bike to be 6.8 kilos mm-hmm. and it's durable. Mm. And like that, that team didn't have any problems. They never had any problems with their bikes. Definitely a food for thought for, for the industry. Um. I want to shift gears a little bit before we uh, before we wrap things up, but uh, this is probably a, a tough one for you to answer because you're always the way you come at things is going to be quite different to this. But I'm keen for for people listening at home that have probably heard about fork failures and how are worried about their own bike that they're on. Uh, I mean, obviously, sending it in to get it scanned by a professional is is one option. But is there is there any sort of visual inspection that you think? is better than nothing that people can do or people should look to do more regularly? Definitely. Um, you know, one of the things I do see on a regular basis is on, on the steer where the, um, the little the ring for the upper, he- upper headset bearing and that will eat into the carbon steerer. And there's a number of, there's a number of factors in that, um, you know, often it's related to the head tube alignment, and so every if if the bearings aren't perfectly concentric, then every time you're turning, you're putting a side load on the steerer, and then that's 
sort of basically eating away. And then, you know, people might put um, some friction paste in there to prevent, you know, it, it, it sort of it goes around in circles a little bit because if the headset bearings aren't um, perfectly concentric and aligned, then every time you turn, you can, you're basically your headset comes out of adjustments so slightly, and so then people re retighten their headset and um, and then they oh I'm going to stop it slipping. I'm going to put some carbon paste in there as well, and and then that acts as an abrasive and makes things worse and, and things like that. But the uh, yeah, I I definitely recommend on a regular basis just dropping your fork, giving it a wipe down, and just just looking for any any uh, signs of things being unusual and um, by holding it in the light um, and sort of rotating it through through different light you can see you can see anomalies in the surface um, you know we one of the things we see is is a crack um, at the steerer where the stem clamp is that's that, that happens um, that happens quite a bit and um, you know, from over tightening the stem, etc., or incorrect compression plug. You know, so those sorts of things can be identified visually. But yeah, just by by dropping the fork, giving it a good clean, hold it up into the light, and look at it from a bunch of different angles. You know, you can tell a lot. And and I get that a lot where people people will do that at home, and then they'll take some pictures of something which they think doesn't look quite right, and they'll send it to me and go. I found this. Is this normal, or is it something to be worried about, or or is it okay? And you know, in some in some cases, you know, there might just be some some molding variation on the surface, and in other cases, there's there's a structural uh, a structural problem. So, um, mm. but you know, one of the problems with these new integrated cable things, it's, it takes about three hours to drop the fork. Um, yep. to do that. And, you know, and then now I hear that you've got the headset bearing manufacturers making the saying, oh, we're making our bearings better so you don't have to drop your fork um, to change the bearings. And it's like, well, you want to drop the fork to inspect the steerer, not just to change the bearings, you know. So mm. um, having better bearings may not you know, like it solves one problem, but it may create another, um, which might have more significant consequences. So, interesting. Um, yeah, so de- you know, definitely, yeah, definitely have a have a look. And you know, I mean, I I'm, I'm well aware that the sample size that I see from a a global point of view is is very small. Um, but when I see out of out of my sample size, you know, if I see say one in three forks. Has you know some some damage or um, and it's not always you know damage which was going to be catastrophic but it's um, it is less than ideal um, yeah I mean you can have a void in an area and will it cause a problem I don't know but I know it wasn't designed to be in there mm. and the manufacturers don't know because they haven't done the the testing and and the evaluation on how that exact size void in that location is going to affect it. So, you know, so there's a lot of unknowns. And, and so, I mean, one of the 
one of the, the research projects which I'm sort of looking at undertaking is um, some of these forks which have defects in it, which I'd, I'd reject, is run them through some testing, some fatigue testing, and, and just see what happens in the long term. Is, is it an actual problem or, or is it not? Um, and um, okay, but you know, it shouldn't be up to me as an independent to be doing that. It should be up to the actual manufacturer to have that. You know, like as a passenger on a commercial airliner, you shouldn't know more about the aircraft than what Boeing do. Good analogy. How far away are you with that testing? Uh, um, well, I'm, I'm building with, with that research. Yeah, I'm, building the, I'm building the rig at the moment. I've got to dust off my Arduino coding. I haven't. I haven't written any code in in a number of years. I've got to remember how to do it. But um, yeah, it's it's that's sort of one of the one of the things I'm, I want to play around with. And it's sort of it's one of the things that I mean I've got forks with defects in them. I've got plenty of forks with defects in them. I, I, it's just a matter of building the rig, put it in, and and it can go off and and do do its thing. And um, yeah, come back you know x amount of time later. Um, and, and see, I mean, the thing is, to, to to do a couple of hundred thousand cycle times at at five hertz, you know, sample frequency, it's you know, it's only it's maybe twelve hours or something like that. It's not the not a real long period of time. So you know, you don't need yeah. And that's sort of one of the things when people say, oh, it takes too long to do this sort of testing. It's just like, well, it doesn't really take that long. Like to do to, to do a twelve hour test. Where you don't even have to be there, like you can run it overnight. You you, you go home in mm. the evening, the machine's running. You come in the morning, and it's finished. And it's just like it hasn't really taken you any time at all. <laughs> so, so one we'll see from you, uh, perhaps on your YouTube channel in the near future. Yeah, I haven't I haven't uploaded anything on YouTube for quite some time. I've been really busy with other stuff, but um, <laughs> yeah, it's um, I just I just want to educate people on this stuff um, instead of people being oblivious to it, and then potentially having consequences. So, you know, what what motivates me is that I enjoy riding my bike and, and you know, bike riding should be fun. It's enjoyable. You shouldn't get killed because of a, of a, of a manufacturing fault, especially when the technology exists to identify those faults and has existed for a very long time. Um, so it's... Um, you know, it's 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 effectively greed which limits that. And you know, I mean, I'm a realist, and I'd say welcome to capitalism. But you know, I think the, there's there's a line too of responsibility. Mm. So it feels like a pretty good place to wrap things up. Uh, Raul, thank you for joining us on the Nerd Alert podcast and uh, for for scaring the daylights <laughs> out of me and and James and everyone else li- listening. But uh, but yeah, hopefully the, there's some useful takeaways amongst this, and hopefully the industry's listening for because uh, it just sounds like the answer is more testing. Yeah, well, it's it's, it's to to fix a problem. The first step is to identify that you've got a problem, and and so you know unless unless things unless people are made aware that there that there can be a problem, well, there's no reason to change. Yeah, you know, so that's that's it's always the first step. So, um, but yeah, as you can tell, I could talk about this stuff for for the next <laughs> five hours, and um, 
But uh, this is just part one. <laughs> we'll, we'll have in a five part series. That's right. But um, no, it's always yeah. it's always good to have a chat um, with you guys. And, Thank you. Uh, yeah, it's um, you know if I can if I can help people where I can, it's I'm happy to do so. And where can people find uh, find more from you? Um, well, yeah, on 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 my social media, yeah, so YouTube and Instagram. But as I said, I, ha- I haven't been that active because I've just been. I've been really busy. Um, yeah, since uh, with this whole sort of COVID supply chain um, thing, more people are getting bikes repaired um, as opposed to replacing them, which is which is a good thing um, from an environmental point of view. Like, you know, it doesn't make sense to throw a part, you know, an expensive part away when you can repair it, and um, you know that. I mean, I heard you guys talk about the right to repair, you know, with a, a number of a number of other products over the years, and yeah, you know, I I think uh, these frames should be under the same same sort of thing. Yeah, great. Thanks, Raoul. And uh, for anyone listening, thanks for joining us. Uh, please leave a positive review if you have any thoughts of that. Like, uh, James, anything else you want to say? Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to, uh, well, getting healthy, first of all, and then getting on my super, super ductal and uh, energy absorbent wrought iron bike very soon. <laughs> that concludes this week's deep dive episode for the Nerd Alert podcast. As you may have noticed by us jumping straight into the nerdy tech, we don't have sponsors on this podcast. Rather, it's brought to you by Avela Club members and Cycling Tips subscribers. If you like what we do and want to support us, then please consider joining. Also, we'd love for you to spread the word about the Nerd Alert podcast. Leaving a review on your preferred podcast player is a great way to help us get discovered by more nerd cyclists. Likewise, tell your friends that their creaking bike is a disaster and that they should listen to the Nerd Alert podcast while getting it sorted. Until next week, cheers. Cheers.